Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I am catching a cold, so if I uh, sniffle or sneeze, I'm very, very sorry. Uh, I'll uh, exile myself if it happens. And we have a special guest. It is Digital Foundry's John Linneman. Welcome aboard. Yay. Hey, thanks for having me. How's it going? I feel like I've known you for quite a while at this point, but we've never had you on the podcast, despite the fact that we have very similar interests. That's right. Yeah. And we kind of work for the same company, I guess you could say. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yes. we really do. Yeah. Well, this is a, and this is a good choice, the topics for today. Very exciting. Yes. And those topics are, we're going to be doing a quick BlitzCon recap. We're going to be talking a bit about Death Stranding, which... It's not really an RPG, but might appeal to RPG fans. I mean, because A, it comes from Japan, and B, it does have some RPG elements, I suppose. And John and I both played it. Oh, yeah. And then the big one, and the reason I brought John on, was for the Sega Saturn console RPG quest, which is going to be very exciting because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Saturn's kind of technical history and such. And John knows a lot about that because he does a little thing called DF Retro, which is really awesome. Well, thank you. And yes, the Saturn is one of my favorite consoles as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy to always talk about it. All right. So if you want to follow us, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And John, what's your Twitter handle? I am at Dark1X, old handle. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very 90s. I like that very much. That's when it started. <laughs> Beautiful. And of course, you should go and watch and subscribe Digital Foundry's excellent YouTube channel, which has a whole bunch of Death Stranding coverage that just went live as the recording of this podcast. It's, of course, the premier tech video site, and I think it's really amazing to have that in our network. I have a huge amount of respect for what you guys do, John. Thank you very much. And of course, uh, the retro stuff is my big passion. <laughs> you guys actually yes. just did a breakdown of, uh, speaking of RPGs, a, a breakdown of Dragon Quest uh, uh, 11S for the yeah, Switch yeah. and how they managed to do that. And that was a really, really interesting video. That's one I was waiting for. Uh, just what they did with it is like really remarkable. Yeah, I can't believe they pulled it off, honestly. It's a really great version of the game. And it's the whole game. Everything's there. So. And that and more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, you can kind of see certain things. Like, uh, I never noticed before, but, like, Sylvando's pom-poms are slightly less round. But those are, like, the, the sacrifices we're talking about here. Like, they're barely noticeable. So, yeah, that was a really great show. Yeah, I, I think that Digital Foundry can be really illuminating in showing how the evolution of Switch ports and how they've been able to just continually improve them. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, DF Retro really digs into the tech behind retro consoles as well. Uh, John was telling me about his, like, completely badass retro setup in his house uh, where he has the, the big old uh, TV with, like, all the consoles and the capture equipment. I think the only one who might beat you, John, is probably Jeremy Parrish. Yeah. I know. I've seen his setup. We're kind of competing at this point in terms of how many consoles are hooked up. I don't know. <laughs> I think it goes back and forth, <laughs> depending on which, which week it is. But yeah, that's what you need to do if you want to do these videos. You got to have that stuff ready to go. <laughs> well, I mean, Jeremy is freaking buying old dev kits off eBay that have uh, capture outputs, which, I mean, that's a whole new level. Well, the bar has been raised. Better go for it. That is the most hardcore, and I salute that behavior. That is excellent. <laughs> 
if you want, uh, if you enjoy Acts of the Blood God, can I suggest that you review and rate us? We really appreciate it. It improves the visibility of the podcast. And of course, tell all your friends, bring more disciples of the Blood God in to show them the light in the way of RPGs. Uh, Nadia has a, we have a weekly newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday. It's hosted by Nadia Oxford. It has a look, some thoughts about RPGs for the week, as well as a roundup of all the RPG news. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Uh, actually, this week was an interesting topic because um, I wrote about uh, RPG uh, music that we like best to work to. And the reason I wrote that is because uh, just this week, the entirety of every Etrian Odyssey soundtrack went up on Spotify. And that is a series that has just a fantastic soundtrack that is just, it runs the gamut between like, you know, really energetic and very smoothy jazz sort of stuff. It's, it's absolutely perfect for, for uh, writing too. And uh, so I recommend that you go ahead and listen to that soundtrack because it's incredible. And uh, you should also sign up for my newsletter because I think it's really cool. Yeah, I have an entire Spotify playlist based around video game. I, I think it's from the video games live albums. Oh, yeah. And they have really great arrangements of a lot of classic tracks. And I especially like to go into retro as much as possible. Some of the Pokemon tracks are especially good. Yeah. John, uh, do you have any? Go ahead, Nadia. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Pokemon Black and White has a really good soundtrack. You think so? I think Diamond and Pearl or Ruby and Sapphire might be my favorite. But of course, Red and Blue and Gold and Silver are good too. Of course. And then after Black and White, it stopped kind of being good. It got a lot more generic, unfortunately. Uh, I think uh, Sun and Moon had a good soundtrack. Yeah, I think so. And I'm probably the only person in the world who liked uh, X and Y's uh, battle music with the gym leaders. <laughs> the very techno uh, beat. John, what video game music do you like to listen to? A lot. <laughs> but yes. Um, <laughs> you don't say yeah, I, on the RPG side, I mean, if if we're talking that, I, I I do go back to the '90s a lot, and there's a lot of great stuff. All the stuff from uh, Falcom, big fan of that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah like, the E soundtracks um, are great. Oh man, those are so good. Uh, I really like uh, Sokaigi from Hiroki Kikuta. If you're familiar with that game, it's a very high budget, but kind of a failure as a game. But it was like an action RPG. But it was uh, it's the composer of Secret of Mana. And he did the whole soundtrack. It was one of the most expensive soundtracks at the time. All live instruments. And it was so intense for the performance that apparently they were actually like angry with him during the production of this score because he asked them to perform at these such high levels that it was actually difficult to achieve this. Uh, but the results, if you haven't heard it, are just still remarkable to this day. What system was it for? Uh, that was for the PlayStations, published by Squaresoft. So, oh, amazing! That sounds really cool. I want to look that it's, up. It's worth looking up. It's a very strange game, very uh, hard to penetrate, but it's like an action RPG-ish thing. But yeah, fascinating thing. All right, let's move on to the RPG news. Which I suppose the big RPG news for today is that Diablo Four has officially been announced it is coming from blizzard as we all knew we thought it might get announced last year but instead we got a kind of a well a disappointing i want to say announcement that we were going to get diablo mobile from netease and of course that started a whole darn thing this is the real deal <laughs> diablo 4 is there a diablo 4 fan in the house john uh, i mean i've enjoyed diablo in the past but i'm certainly not a super fan of it 
I am curious. Now to you see- played a bunch of Diablo three. Yes, I actually did very much enjoy Diablo three, but um, not enough that I really knew what was going on in the story trailer. But uh, mm. if you can give me more of the isometric loot gathering, shooting, hey, I can play as a demon hunter thing, uh, I'm I'm down. In fairness, I don't think that there was a ton of established lore. I think it was establishing new lore. Because it was just telling the story of some treasure hunters who seem to run afoul of a dark priest who then uses them to summon Lilith, which, hello, Lilith. She appears to be the new villain of Diablo, and I, I'm down for some uh, lady power for Diablo 3's, uh, Diablo's demons, hey? Yeah, I'm down with it. I've always been like kind of a fan of Lilith, you know, she's actually a prominent demon in Jewish folklore, so I've kind of, a lot of the, the stuff you grow up with when you're Jewish is kind of toward off Lilith in weird ways. It's all just superstition and silliness, but it's still kind of fun. Um, I actually really, really, really like the depiction of Lilith in Shin Megami Tensei, where she's just this uh, kind of uh, naked uh, androgynous chick who has a snake wrapped around her who's supposed to be Samael. And the longer you look at her, the more you realize she's wrong. Like, her, she has three fingers and webbed toes, and you don't notice that at first glance. You're just like, hey, there's a naked chick here, but no. I, I just think she's a really interesting design. Uh, so it's kind of like, oh, okay, Diablo has a you know, sexy lady with horns or whatever, big deal. But uh, sure, I'm down. I'm not expecting Diablo 4 to really go all out with the, the main demons. Because Diablo, Diablo himself, for the longest time, was just kind of a generic fire demon guy. Yeah, it says it all right there in the name, doesn't it, Diablo? <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, you've played a bunch of Diablo 3 on Switch and really got into it. I did, yes. And that's why I'm a little disappointed that, like, uh, so far, as far as we know, Diablo 4 not announced for Switch. Well, I mean, you know... Diablo 3 was PC only initially, right? So yeah, yeah. I suspect we'll see plenty of ports of Diablo 4. If not right away, then... PC, PS4, PC, and Xbox One to start. Yeah, so I don't know. It, it feels like they'd be leaving money on the table not to bring this to Switch as well. I think so, yeah. Um, did they say to start? I didn't notice that part. That it, it has to be coming out next year because next year is when Next Gen launches. So if they wait all the way to 2021... That's a long time to wait to launch it on previous-gen consoles, unless they release it on all of them. That's an interesting point, actually, because if you recall, Diablo 3 console version hit uh, PS3 and Xbox 360 pretty much in this generation, or like right before it. Right. And of course, they later got PS4 and Xbox One and eventually Switch ports, so it's kind of happening again. (laughs) It's all happening again. Yeah, my recollection was that Diablo 3 in 2012... 360 and PS3 in 2013, which was the year that the Xbox yep. One and PS4 launched, and then PS4, Xbox One ports in 2014. Yeah, that's, that's which was me. the year after. So, uh, yeah, maybe they'll come out next year and then we'll get ports the year after. I just hope that Diablo 4 isn't the kind of same mess as Diablo 3, and that it has a really kind of robust solo component because. They were making a big yeah. deal about shared online worlds, which was kind of making me side-eye this one a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really hope that they also just kind of move in a slightly... They do something a little more bold, rather than just retreading the same ground. Because, I mean, Diablo Diablo 3's been milked pretty heavily, and if it was just more of that... In the meantime, also, there was a new World of Warcraft expansion uh, announced... <laughs> Uh, Mike would be the one who would be the most excited about that, I'm sure. He will be able to tell us all about the Shadowlands expansion. The most that I could get out of it was that Sylvanas, who is the 
undead elf gal from Warcraft 3 uh, tears apart the Lich King helmet and starts the third impact. All right, then. <laughs> the third impact. The third impact. <laughs> that took me a second. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, it looks cool. I mean, but it's more World of Warcraft. I kind of wonder if New WoW is kind of done at this point, and now it's much more about uh, WoW Classic because it's such a nostalgia brand at this point. Yeah. That's a good question, although I do know, I don't know, speaking personally, if I was playing WoW and they decided to really concentrate on WoW Classic instead, I'd be a little cheesed off. You think so? I'm not a fan of like going back to old systems and stuff like that. I just don't get the nostalgia rush out of it that some people do. You like retro games. Yeah, but I don't like like going, you know, it's hard to explain, but it's just with MMOs, it's such a grindy you know, experience. I'm just thinking of the times I've tried to play classic MMOs and after playing the, you know, more modern updates and being like, huh, this was fun for 10 minutes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, certainly it won't have the, it doesn't have the same quality of life stuff, but a lot exactly. of find that charm. I'm a, I'm a big fan of quality of life improvements. Oh, come on. You're not like waiting to go back to Meridian 59 or something? <laughs> or original <laughs> Ultima Online, maybe? Oh, man. Oh, that would be something else. There's still people playing EverQuest to this day. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. As I've said many times, there's still people playing Ragnarok online. All right, I guess we'll see when it comes to BlitzCon. It's nice to have another WoW expansion coming out because that's what keeps Mike happy. And I'm sure he'll. <laughs> Otherwise, he tries I'm to sure murder us. I'm sure he'll do some really good coverage on it, as always. And as people get tired of WoW, uh, we can always. Well, we can kind of corner that space. So. Okay, so another thing that happened this week was all of the Death Stranding reviews dropped. John, you played that game. I played oh, yes. that game. I think we both finished it. John, did you like it? Yeah, I did like it, actually. And it's one of those things where there was times when I thought I may not like it, but then I would think about it and come back around and be like, okay, this is pretty cool. Uh, it's... I think we've both thought about this from the sort of the PS2 angle, and I really think that's an interesting point in that it does feel like a game from a different era, but at the same time with niceties of, you know, a modern game as well. It's a strange one, though. I mean, it's it's extremely anime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said it was basically Evangelion. Um, I, I mean, certainly you can see a lot of similarities in the way that its big apocalyptic event is very similar to the second impact, for example, um, and not many the other third things. Impact, that <laughs> not the third impact. The second impact is what started everything, um, <laughs> but didn't necessarily end the world. In World of Warcraft, it seemed as if Sylvanas ended the world. Ah, oh, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get our uh, Evangelion references straight here, people. Yeah, because. I mean, if you ever saw the Ava movies, uh, the third impact basically sends everybody into Nadia, the blue water. Um, cool. <laughs> which is cool. Um, and uh, it sort of seems like something similar with WoW. But yeah, I mean, Death Stranding, it's your typical Kojima. It's very overwrought. Um, I was having a little bit of a chuckle in the extremely heated discourse that has already emerged around this game about like the the brilliance of its themes and everything. I'm not going to call anybody out. I just, I, I, I mean, come on, it's it's I, 
it's Kojima, I right? Very much. Kind of, I, I kind of miss this craziness because most big games are mm. not willing to go into just insanity. Like even if it's like stupid, it's still kind of it's a fun ride and it's interesting and intriguing at least, and just to understand like what they were thinking when making this. I mean, think of all the other recent games. You got Call of Duty or Borderlands Three or something. There's I don't really think there's anything very interesting about them from this sort of perspective it's just like you know exactly what those games are and there's nothing revelatory about the storytelling there it's just okay it's more of this uh and you know it's just appealing to me having to play a lot of these big games to have something that's so different and bizarre even if it maybe goes a little too far sometimes yeah i mean at the end of the day you're absolutely right because uh especially on the holiday season you're going to get a lot of triple a games and safe games based on properties and over here with Kojima, you have Norman Reedus Empreg. Like, it doesn't get weirder than that. And I, I appreciate that Sony took a, a risk on this. I um, I was trying to explain it to friends last night. And I was like, yeah, and you're carrying this baby in a jar. And you shake the baby sometimes to make them happier. And then you take a shower and all of the, the be- blood, sweat, and tears becomes grenades and weapons. And you're finding these ghosts from another dimension. <laughs> but beyond the story, though, the thing to take away from it for me is that they sort of flipped the whole traversal thing and A to B style gameplay on its head. Like you play most open world games and the, what happens is when you get to the point. If you're going from A to B, everything between A and B is literally just walking somewhere. And sometimes there's stuff to see, but it's always optional. You can just kind of press forward and you get there. And then when you get to B, the event happens. Where here, like, the interesting stuff is what happens during the trek from A to B. And when you actually get to B, it's usually not that much. So it's kind of like just changing it so that it's actually interesting and sort of engaging to do the trek and plan it all out. And making the inventory a physical thing instead of just a menu uh, is part of that. I thought it was interesting that somebody called out the snowstorm as something that they didn't like because I actually really enjoyed that, that sequence. That was so great. Because it, it felt like really intense, right? They really drove home how hard you're working to get over this stupid mountain with the wind blowing in your face and the near whiteout conditions. And I think the BTs were around. And You felt tired. When you hit the other side, you felt as tired as Norman Reedus. And he's like covered in snow and everything and often bloody and when he collapses into bed you really feel it too you're like i am also collapsing into bed my god that was exhausting oh they did great with this just the animation of him both collapsing in the bed and also when you pick up your 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 stuff like all the gear you're going to carry the way you hoist that stuff up it looks like it weighs a million pounds you, just, and you, you feel it you feel it it's great yeah uh, John, you said that you were really impressed with the graphics. Like uh, you yeah. kind of said, it was a new benchmark. I think so. Um, I I really like the visual style they went with, and just there's there's an attention to detail to all, both the small and the large scale, which I think is fascinating. Like if you just look around your feet, everything there is usually very detailed. The character models are obscenely detailed, but you still get this huge sense of scale in these vistas, and I think they really love this. Uh, the slopes and the long surfaces that actually make the world feel somehow larger in scale than usual for an open world game. Just that idea of like running down a massive hill at top speed or you know riding one of your carriers, which is also fun. Uh, it just feels huge and it looks amazing in motion and they're just 
it's clear that it was very expensive in some of those areas, especially the character models, which are some of the best I've ever seen. Yes, the character models are really good, I think, and the landscapes as well. Um, yeah. Interestingly, when you get into cities, the cities tend to be really drab and nondescript, almost like they're just off screen. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's a little bit of that as well. And obviously, they kind of reuse assets and spots for some of the bridges stuff. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I mean, that could almost just be like considered like, okay, we manufactured these things or 3D printed this thing to a spec. And that's just what the surface thing is. But. Um, although it is fun when you come upon a bridges center and there's something different about it, even if it's just like, uh, the one in the mountain pass when it's all covered in rust and dirt and you're just like, Oh, okay. This one's, this one has been through some things, some decent visual storytelling. And yet at the same time, it's really old school in the way that it leans so heavily on cutscenes. Like yeah. the, the ending is like a solid two hours long and wow. it also, yeah, no, it's really long. Uh, it goes through credits twice. <laughs> um, and then also there's uh, the fact that a lot of the secondary or tertiary storytelling is done through email. Oh, yeah, that's that's not great. I'm not a fan. I mean, it's okay, but it does feel like that's that's kind of part of where I see, oh, maybe this game had a more strict of a budget than you think, basically. Or he spent the budget on other things. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I will say though, like they they did pour the money into the different actors and personalities, and but what's interesting about it is that the people that star in the game are all somewhat atypical looking for game characters. It's not just like the chiseled every man or like the perfect, per. You know what I mean? It's they all yes. are just kind of unique looking and different, and it kind of lends it a, a unique feel in terms of what the characters look like and the way they act. I like that. I liked all of the characters. I thought Higgs was a great villain. Oh, yeah. I liked... Uh, I, I thought Dead Man was a lot of fun. Yep. Heartman, uh, Mama, Fragile. I mean, they were all just really memorable characters for the most part. Yeah, I really liked Fragile. She was great. Other than that, you know, there was one scene, but other than that, uh, she's quite a good character and and yeah, the mama thing, uh, without going into detail into that, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, uh, yeah, I, we're not allowed to talk about that bit until the game actually comes out, that's I right. think. So, and... no, nothing said there, but okay. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. like a three-layer embargo around it's, this game. I know, it's so deep. <laughs> it's one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever signed. But, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, it's just as ridiculous as the game. But then they put out that, that trailer, though, the launch trailer, if you saw that. Well, I love that everybody had the breakout with Conan and O'Brien, and then Kojima goes out and just reveals it. Yeah, exactly. Like, are you kidding me? I watched that, and I'm just like, okay. Like, all this hubbub around spoilers, and then they put out this trailer. And then there's the one person who posted the tweet saying how much they loved Death Stranding after they had finished it, which was clearly a violation of, like, the oh, agreement. yeah. That was hilarious. And then Kojima retweets them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. the freaking worst god well I got, uh, I got some retweets on my video from from old kojima so oh that's nice i can, I can hang with that <laughs> <laughs> is that like your most successful video of the year oh i don't know about that yet it's hard to say we've had some <laughs> i know you guys did that rad uh 
playing modern games on CRTs, like that did really that well. That weirdly for you guys. blew up, and that wasn't even intended to like. That was just a side chat thing, and we're like, oh, okay, we need to do a little more detail on this going forward. But I'm a weird CRT like lover, and I managed to convince Richard to get into it as well. And well, you know. <laughs> I salute you. I actually have an old CRT from like right before they took them off the shelves. Like it's like kind of the flat screen Sony uh, yeah, deal going on. Don't don't let it go. Then those are no, I won't. Great. Perfect for retro games. Well, the last thing I want to say about Death Stranding is that I think there's a line to draw between a game being tedious and a game being boring. Uh, because tedious, it's like uh, okay, like I'm doing this shit again. I don't particularly like it at this particular junction in time but I'm going to get through it. Whereas boring, I think, goes even a little deeper and suggests that there's something about this game that's not worth it. And I think that ultimately Death Stranding is worth it. I liked it. Uh, It's hard to recommend to everybody because I think there are a lot of people who will just flat out hate it. It's like trying to recommend a really trippy art house film to somebody who mostly like Marvel, who likes Marvel flicks. But I do think it's a worthwhile game, and if you can hang with it, like you should absolutely give it a give it a look. Yeah, for all its flaws, it's probably going to end up on one of my lists of the year. I think at this point, we'll see. <laughs> I've been on the fence about whether I want to put it forward for our top twenty at the end of the year, which is one of the big reasons that I gave it the score that I did. I was like, do I want to put this on our top twenty? I don't know. It's there's, I do think that it its structure is a weakness a little bit yeah shave like 10 hours off this game i think (laughs) big time so yeah go check out my review of death stranding it's over on the site i gave it a 3.5 out of 5 i wrote 2500 words go go read something for once you like review i enjoyed it and also go check out john's uh digital foundry breakdown where he goes into all of the tech and everything those videos are always worthwhile watches okay That's it for that. Let's continue on to the main subject, which is the classic RPG console quest, the Sega Saturn. Don't go away. Okay, folks, this is the latest entry in our RPG console quest, our ongoing attempt to look at every single console in gaming history, or at least the ones that matter, and observe their RPG history. Heck, we even talked about the Philips CDI last week, Nadia. <laughs> we did. Uh, we sure gave it a try, and we had a, we actually had a lot of fun with that one. Uh, that and the Jaguar uh, and the Neo Geo and... Um, what was the last one we did in that? 3DO. The 3DO. 3DO. Yes, we bundled those all together. That was a lot of fun as well. I'm glad you guys covered those all because I do collect for those systems because they are so crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I imagine so. They must be fun to collect for. Oh, yeah. There's just... It's often... Like, a lot of the stuff is truly terrible, but there is actually plenty of interesting and enjoyable games on all of them, especially in 3DO. Well, in Neo yeah. of course, is pretty much all gold, but not a lot of RPGs there. No, sadly. The the Samurai Showdown RPG is pretty rad. Yeah, it really is. It's awesome. But this console has a pretty rich RPG legacy, I want to say. It is the Sega Saturn, which in some ways is the black sheep of the Saturn console family. And in some ways, it's still beloved to this day and 
God, I wish they would release it as a mini console because I'm I'm now past the point where I'm like, okay, yeah, you've given me my Nintendo and my Sat, my SNES and my Sega Genesis, but I mean, what about the Saturn, a console that with games that are often extremely hard to find? Yeah. Like I look at, I made a big old list of RPGs <laughs> that came out on that thing, and so many of them are next to impossible to get these days. Yeah, most of them are. Most of the RPGs are, and I'm sure we'll get to the whole uh, reason why eventually. But uh, there's, you're right, because the Saturn is is one uh, mini console I would love to have as long as they don't pull the PlayStation and give us like a bunch of you know games that we really don't want instead of RPGs. <laughs> the darkest timeline, right? It really is. But I'm curious, what is our individual histories with the Sega Saturn? I will start. I have never played the Sega Saturn, and I've never owned a Sega Saturn. <laughs> so good start there. <laughs> Moving right along. Because the Sega Saturn, when it came out, it came out in uh, 1995 in the U.S. in the Japan. Okay, you got the in U.S. In 94 in Japan. <laughs> yes. And I was, at that time, uh, 12 years old. I did not have a lot of disposable income. And if you had put a gun to my head and said, you can get one console, I would have said a Super Nintendo. Like, I would have preferred a Super Nintendo over a PlayStation or a Saturn because I was deeply suspicious of 3D graphics, actually. I didn't think they looked as good as sprites at that time. Mostly because of Star Fox, which was an interesting-looking game, but it really uh, kind of put pitted me against those kinds of graphical styles because I, I thought that they were weird looking and awkward which is also funny though because i played on, i was playing on pc at that time as, and i was playing 3d games on the pc <laughs> like gorod shaded pc but for some reason i think i separated the pcs and the consoles in my head well that makes sense yeah you're like that uh that kid i used to sit beside in computer class who was always telling me how much better uh, console games were because they were 3d I remember making fun of the Sega Saturn. <laughs> well, we didn't. And we all goofed on it when, I think in 1997, they released, uh, they basically slashed the price really heavily and were giving away a ton of games with it. And it seemed completely not worth it to get one at that time. And it was only much later that I learned of its rather rich uh, RPG legacy, at which point I circled back and found ways to play at least some of these games. So unfortunately, the Saturn emulation was a real tough nut to crack for quite a long time. So, uh, but I did li- when I was living in Japan. I would always see like giant stacks of Sega Saturn. It's seen as kind of a rare console here, but over there, it's quite common because it was a lot more popular over there. Uh, John, what's your history with the Sega Saturn? So I did buy a Saturn in 1997. Uh, up until- Whoa, you're cool. Yeah, in uh, that point. There was a period where I was very heavy into the PC, like after the 16-bit, but for some reason, I guess it was the low price point at that point. I was like, I, I loved Sega Genesis. I love Sega arcade games. I figured, let's just get the Saturn. And I started from there, and I guess it's lucky because a lot of the games I ended up buying, uh, at the time, I got them for dirt cheap. Uh, and now many of them are extremely valuable, it turns out. So it's one of those cases where I had stuff like working design Saturn games where like friends at GameStop were throwing out the cases into the back, into the bin to throw them out and be like, uh, can I just have these? Like, yeah, sure. That's fine. So I'm getting all these things. I, I pulled out stuff like Albert Odyssey and 
some like shining wisdom and stuff like that out of that bin and there you go so wow i've been playing saturn since 97 and it's a system i've kind of always loved but you, you know at the time obviously the u.s library was fairly limited even though i enjoyed it uh but once i eventually got into like importing games uh now i'm up to about 250 or so japanese games and you were the one keeping victor yeah. ireland in business uh, at the time yeah <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the Saturn is one of those kind of unsung, wonderful consoles. It's absolutely packed with, like, if you missed 2D during that era, the Saturn is kind of the home to go to because there are so many amazing 2D games on the on the system in Japan. Just the most beautiful pixel art, brilliant arcade conversions, tons of shooters, tons of action games, platformers, fighting games. It's all there. And of course an absolute insane number of rpgs and it's actually somewhat close to the playstation in a way in that sense in terms of sheer volume but uh yeah and i guess i did try to play through i've played through a number of the games in japanese as well while studying that's that kind of thing and i've been i've just spent a lot of time playing saturn over the years and i still have one hooked up right now and i use it regularly Nadia, what's your history with the Sega Saturn? Uh, I have not no history uh, with the Sega Saturn because, like you, I was <laughs> quite young. I was saving for an N64, and I was still kind of a Nintendo fangirl, and I just had no interest in the Saturn, uh, especially once uh, the price for the Saturn versus the PlayStation was revealed. And I saw that you know Final Fantasy VII was coming to the PlayStation. I said, well, I'm a Final Fantasy fangirl, so that's what I'm getting. And like you, I realized much later, oh, hey this console has some great RPGs that I will never play because they're now like a thousand million dollars. So, you know, that I guess that's my problem now. Yeah, that was the thing was that I knew in 1995 that the Nintendo 64 was coming. And I was a Nintendo fangirl. Um, like, I like Sonic. But otherwise, the Sega Genesis was not really my jam. And so... I was predisposed to not care about the Saturn. I was all in on the N64. And honestly, it took me a long time to get in over to the PlayStation. What I'm saying is, don't be a console warrior, folks. Embrace all of the consoles, because yes. they all have worthwhile things. You gain nothing by being one. Yeah, exactly. If, if there's anything that you should know about this console RPG quest, love all of the consoles, except the CDI. It's not a, not a good console. And the Jaguar. <laughs> but... Whoa now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Don't say things uh, you can't take back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get a little bit into the history of the Sega Saturn. I think the Sega Saturn has one of the most interesting histories out of practically any console ever. Uh, a lot of its story is extremely well known. Uh, there were clashes behind the scenes over the chipset that it was going to be used. Uh, Sega of America and Sega Japan's. Uh, simmering tensions came to a head, at least according to console wars. And it ultimately, it was mandated to get an early release in the United States. And so in one of the greatest shocks in gaming history, Tom Kalinske gets up in front of everybody and says, as lays out everything to do with the Sega Saturn, and then says, to meet high demand, we're releasing a few hundred thousand units early right now it's in stores so they shadow dropped a freaking console <laughs> in 1995 <laughs> can you imagine if that happened today if at e3 next year they just said 
The PlayStation 5 is going to be amazing, <laughs> and it's in stores right now. That would be the worst thing on planet Earth. <laughs> I completely concur. It would send everybody into, it would just throw everybody for a loop. Right? I think all of us as games writers and video makers and whatnot, we, we would just write a suicide pack right then and there because I am not, I am not here for that. John, do you remember when this happened? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely remember it. And it was one of those things, I mean, I was too young at the time that it actually released to be able to afford one. And like I said, I was really into the PC, but I was definitely impressed when I first saw it. But at the same time, it was pretty clear that there weren't, weren't a lot of games for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's ultimately the problem with that launch is that they, the software wasn't there. Uh, I mean, that was one problem, which they didn't have Sonic. Price, and there's Sonic, not many games. Uh, and yeah, I, I think they angered a lot of retailers as well with that crazy yes. launch because they didn't give supply to uh, equally. So not a great way to launch it, which is kind of interesting because it's the antithesis of Japan where the Saturn got off to a remarkable start. And in fact, um, it is easily the number two console that generation. The N64 is not popular in Japan. Uh, it did not do that well in comparison. So, uh, But the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis was not popular at all in Japan. So it was kind of the reverse, right? Yeah. It's kind of interesting how that works out because I would argue that the one thing you really needed for the Saturn to be a huge hit over here was a Sonic game. And there was no, no Sonic game in sight other than Extreme, which was, of course, canceled. It made in the U.S., I guess. It seems like uh, Sonic Team just had no interest in actually working on Sonic at that point. Well, my understanding <laughs> is that there was a Sonic Extreme, uh, but there are, again, big uh, battles going on between Sega of America and Sega Japan, which I thought Yuji Naka was working for uh, Sega of America at that time. But I was reading up a little bit on Sonic Extreme. And so, you're right, Sonic Extreme was being developed in the U.S. Yuji Naka was not involved, and they went through different engines. They had that sort of fisheye lens engine. They also had yes. attempted to co-opt the work that he was doing on Knights, uh, the Knights into Dreams engine. And, of course, when, that was he, the deal. Yep. when Naka found out about it, he was furious, and that got pulled from them. So it was just in this tremendous turmoil. And there is actually leaked builds of it out there. Uh, actually weirdly playable on the pc but there is also a saturn version and i've messed with these before and covered them in a video and it's very weird to see what they were trying to do i don't think it really ever would have worked well but um yeah it's it was a weird time sonic on the saturn in 3d just probably would never have most likely not i mean if you like want to see the opposite of it i mean looking at mario 64 which launched day and day with the n64 in in that moment said okay this is what mario looks in in 3d and it pushed everything forward it made the 3d platformer genre and it honestly like if you want to see what maybe the saturn would have looked like if it had had sonic at launch and it had been good maybe you look at the n64 except the n64 was a cons- was still a, a cartridge based system so and well, it had its own problems. the main thing there is that uh, mario is a slower paced game and they switched the design so that you're basically in these arenas not arenas but you know it's like a level that's built vertically and sort of in a square 
where you can kind it's of like feel, traversal puzzles instead of pure platforming. Exactly, where Sonic was more about momentum and moving forward. And at that time, displaying maps large enough to make a Sonic game work in 3D isn't something you really could have done well on the Saturn, I think. So they would have needed to resort to more of a 2D like game design. We we got a peek of this in the Sonic Jam bonus area that's been mentioned uh, plenty of times. If you guys familiar with that? Nope. Sonic Jam is the, it's a collection of Sonic One, Two, Three, and all that. The Hub and World. A, yeah, the Hub World. It's 3D, and you can kind of explore around as Sonic. And I think that's kind of like a sort of a pseudo prototype for what Sonic Adventure would become. Well, Tom Kalinske, the moment that he announced that the Saturn would be available early, that was, in my opinion, the death knell of Sega's console business. It alienated retailers, as we already talked about. It completely, like, it got things started out on the wrong foot here in America. Sony came in, and all they had, literally all they had to do was say $299 in response. That was, that was certainly a moment. And not only that, uh, the PlayStation had better games at launch. Uh, one of the problems was that the Saturn had Daytona USA, which was considered inferior to the arcade game. And it had Virtual Fighter, which was not very popular over here. Whereas the PlayStation had Tekken, which, was, which quickly became very popular. And Ridge Racer, which was considered the superior racing game. So, And then a lot of uh, reviewers really liked it. I think it was more Battle Arena Toshinden on the PlayStation side. Do you guys remember that one? Mm. Oh God, how could I, I forget? Yeah. Had the had the worst ads in history. Yeah, they were awful. <laughs> but that that game receives a ton of hype initially, uh, and it was kind of like the fighting game until Tekken hit. And it was, mm-hmm. um, but it, it what mattered at the time was that it looked better than what was on Saturn, and so everybody'd see that and be like, "Oh wow, this is amazing." Yeah, because Virtual Fighter still had that polygonal thing looking uh, going on. I still remember the cover of Next Generation magazine that showed all the Virtual Fighter people standing, uh, and it was titled The Looming Video Game Wars of 1995. <laughs> Everyone's invited except uh, Sega. So the thing that always kind of surprised me about the way the Saturn went is that in the arcade, the, the Saturn was kind of built as a 2D machine originally, and 3D is basically bolted on. I mean, it's got two graphics processors, two CPUs, it's just an insane beast to work on. But in the arcades, they were pushing boundaries with their Model 1, Model 2, Model 3 boards. You know, the ones powering Virtue Fighter 2 and eventually mm-hmm. Virtue Fighter 3, Daytona USA. That was the best 3D in the world at that time. Nothing was even remotely close to what they were doing in the arcade. Uh, but they didn't even attempt at all to bring anything like that home. Uh, which kind of surprises me. Like I would have expected them to try to push more cutting edge 3D at the time because that's what they were doing in the arcade. So I always thought it was a weird mismatch. That is a good point. I never thought of that. It's strange that Sega went in that direction. Uh, but after after the complete mess that was the Sega Saturn's launch, um, there were changes. Tom Kalinske ultimately departed and he was replaced by Bernie Stolar who had helped the PlayStation, or it, he had helped secure a exclusive license with Mortal Kombat 3, I believe with Sony. He had done some other work. He was highly regarded with third-party relations. He had a really strong relationship with EA. He was considered to be an asset 
Uh, but very quickly, he developed a reputation for not being an RPG fan. The Blood God is frowning. <laughs> the Blood God so, is furious. <laughs> supposedly, he threw his body in front of uh, getting certain RPGs localized. Didn't think they would sell very well over here. Uh, interestingly enough, he did toil GameSpot in 1999 uh, when people were uh, in the run-up to the Dreamcast, actually. Products that are in development right now are some things I can't talk about. Let me just say... There's going to be some surprises here, but we do believe that there's obviously a strong title, and I'm also a big believer in RPGs as well. No one ever believes that because I am of the coin-operated side of the business, but I'm an older, wiser person these days. It's, it's interesting so, that he was so anti-RPG. That was it was the same thing happening with Nintendo in Japan, at least, with Yamauchi, making plenty right. of comments sort of disparaging RPG gamers over there. And it's true, the N64 has very few RPGs. Uh, clearly, though, Sony capitalized on this popularity and went nuts, and they kind of made this, made a huge push in the U.S. ultimately with this. But the Saturn, not so much in North America. Well, let's talk about those RPGs. Yes. So there are a lot of them, and I, I jotted down some like stray observations about the various RPGs. One thing that uh, standed out to me stands out to me is. Uh, there's a lot of sequels, maybe not as many original series, uh, to wit. Shining Force 3 and Panzer Dragoon Saga, uh, regarded as two of the best RPGs on the Saturn. Shining Force 3 is, of course, a direct sequel, and Panzer Dragoon Saga is a reimagining slash spinoff of Panzer Dragoon. It's actually a great game to play today in the sense that it's not that long, so it's very easy to get into. But even now, it's a very creative sort of game. It, it is like a turn-based system, but the way it works is it still manages to sort of integrate the feeling of the original shooter series in there. And it's just the world that you explore and the story that they tell is very unique and different, even now. Yeah, I've watched playthroughs of it. It looks really interesting. It's Yeah, it's a very strange experience, and the soundtrack is just incredible still today, and that's all done with, uh, I guess, sequenced music. It's not like digital pre-recorded audio, so they have a really nice, large soundtrack that sounds excellent. And, I, I mean, obviously the reason I think it stands out is because it's the highest profile RPG that was localized into English, and obviously it's become very, very rare <laughs> these days due to the low print run. So it's kind of gained this, like, reputation and sort of this legend around it. Yeah, yeah. And, Maybe it's hard to live up to that legend due to that sort of hype, but I do still think it's a really solid game. What did you did you ever see the ads that they put out for that game in, in on the backs of magazines where they told it to like cut out uh, the main character's face and wear it because you couldn't find the uh, there's no way you're going to find the game. What was the deal with that ad? <laughs> that one that's a good question. I don't know. That's a weird one too, but I do remember that. Uh, but the. On, on a related note, over in the UK, of course, so my boss, Richard Ledbetter, actually ran the official Sega Saturn magazine uh, over in the UK, which was a very popular magazine, it turns out. A lot of people were into that. They did the bold move of releasing disc one of Panzer Dragoon Saga with the magazine. So it was the entirety of disc one, which is not that long, but still, it's the full disc one. And if you purchase the game, then you literally just pick up your save from that point. And it was basically a chance to sort of give people a, a really opportunity to try the game. 
And, you know, I talked to people that were reading the magazine back then. And that's one of those stunts that a lot of people still remember. It really resonated, the idea of giving away a large chunk of a game like that. It's like the equivalent of giving away a demo disc, except that you're giving away disc one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All you kids who still who don't remember demo discs, piece, magazines used to give away just CDs packed with demos of games. And to Coconut Monkey, the PC stand. Gamer. <laughs> PC Gamer, I pay, well, I was enticed to pick up a copy of PC Gamer because they had a demo disc with a Desert Strike on it. Excellent. <laughs> yes. And, you know, of course, when you don't have access to a lot of games back then, like, just being able to play demos was awesome, yeah, right? The uh, demo for Final Fantasy VII is particularly infamous because that came packed with Tobal Number 1, if I recall correctly, and everyone bought the game to get the Final Fantasy VII demo, and they returned Tobal Number 1 when they played it. Oh, Square did that so much during the, the PlayStation era. So many games came with. They had like Squaresoft Demo Disc Collectors Volume 1, Volume 2, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, Shining Force 3 is an interesting case. Um, I would say that maybe Shining Force fans can disagree with me. It seems like that was kind of the last kind of good entry in the series, but it was a very good entry. Um, if you look at it today in just screenshots it looks dated but if you actually watch it in action it has a little bit of a xenogears vibe to it uh especially in the overworld uh, exploration sequence where it's kind of isometric and you have the rotating camera and everything so I, I like the general look um sadly the the actual battle sequences are in 3d and they look very dated yeah they, oh that's too bad because that series always had great sprite art that's a that's kind of a shame because that one you're right the first one was localized shining force 3 part one but then there was uh, two additional scenarios for that game that were Japan only. So if you were an American player, you really didn't get the whole story at the time, which I always found kind of frustrating. Yeah, that is pretty frustrating, especially because uh, Shining Force 3 had one of the most intricate stories in the entire uh, series. That's right. And a great soundtrack, by the way. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good era for soundtracks. All right, observation number two. Uh, the PlayStation and the Saturn often found themselves competing. You would have a game that was on both consoles, and invariably today we still talk about the differences between them. Everything from Symphony of the Night to Street Fighter Alpha 3, and then in the RPG space, uh, perhaps a positive example of the Saturn beating out its PlayStation counterpart is Grandia. I, I would say that's one of the most infamous examples of the Saturn version being better but that one never came out here in america of course not that would have been a shoe in for a working designs release i'm sure if oh they god had, you know basically been told <laughs> told off by bernie stoller <laughs> <laughs> yeah so grandia was a huge deal at the time uh among the saturn faithful and keep in mind that i love the playstation at the time as well and the pc i loved all the platforms but I was also into Saturn, so it's not a fanboy kind of perspective here. But I remember it being almost unfairly pitched as like the Saturn's Final Fantasy VII, since everything was trying to be pitched as Final Fantasy VII, which I think... Yeah, Panzer not, Dragoon Saga was like that too. That's a shame in retrospect, but that's that's what they thought the market wanted. So and maybe they were kind of right. But Grandi is a much more cheerful game, an upbeat. It's a, a very very different experience, but... What I love about it, beyond the presentation itself, which is quite gorgeous on the Saturn, uh, it's 
it's got a wonderful battle system. That whole that time bar system uh, is just a really smart design. And at the time, I don't recall seeing anything quite like that. It was a huge step up from the Lunar games, I think. I wish more games would borrow from it. <laughs> I agree, yeah. And just being able to interrupt your enemies and like planning out... that you, It's like, okay, can I execute this attack before this enemy hits me and then cancel his attack and all that kind of stuff was really fun and it's very satisfying when you get sort of a combo going and you almost prevent the enemy from attacking at all sometimes it's great stuff and as you say the saturn version did have some advantages over the playstation namely it so if you recall earlier i mentioned the saturn has two video processors right one of those was designed very specifically to handle 2d graphics and and sort of uh, tile maps and such. And on there, you can do something kind of like uh, Mode 7 on Super NES, where you have a large tile map, or think of it almost like a texture, uh, that you can rotate and scale and do whatever. On Saturn, a lot of games used that as the floor. So you could have this large, flat floor that was textured that was basically free to draw in terms of processing power. It was very easy to do it. So you could do a huge area and actually drawing the whole floor was simple. And then you just put your polygon buildings or quad polygon buildings on top of it. And that's what you have. And so they were able to do a lot of this for Grandia and really make these intricate large scale maps. But on PlayStation, they had to render everything out as triangles. Uh, So Ah. the PlayStation version actually had to push more geometry around the screen. And as a result, some things had to be simplified, some of the details are lost, and it doesn't always run as well as it does on Saturn. And things like the water, they had some special techniques for the water that the Saturn could do with its second video display processor that the PlayStation could not copy. Uh, and, you know, so this was Game Art's big game for Saturn. It was designed from the ground up for Saturn, so when it was brought to PlayStation, it was kind of finding a way to convert these tricks over to the PlayStation hardware, which was completely different. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. It's a cool thing. and it's I just, didn't know that. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those fun things. Oh, and the soundtrack, too, of course. Got to mention that again. It's uh, Noriyuki Iwadare. Uh, he hasn't done... I'm sure he's still doing stuff around these days. But I always like that sort of... It has a nice vibe to it. You guys have heard the soundtrack? Yes, I've I've like haven't finished Grandia, but yeah, it's a very like heroic soundtrack, right? Like it it just has a really nice sound to it, and it's it's very pleasant, very different from what Final Fantasy and the like was doing. Yes, it really is the antithesis to to Final Fantasy at the time, and it's just um, a phenomenal game, and it's really really a shame that it never got a proper English release over here because I do think it could have been a hit even with the saturn sort of in its failing state i think it mm-hmm. could have uh, grabbed the attention of some people because it really is a cheerful fun and also beautiful game on the saturn okay observation number three <laughs> there are a lot of good strategy rpgs on the sega saturn uh when i mentioned that there weren't a ton of maybe brand new legendary series coming out of it uh, one example maybe was Sakura Tyson, which is not as well known here, but was that one of the first examples of a true transmedia franchise kind of launching? Because when the original Sakura Wars came out, it very quickly got its own OVA and tons of merch and like video. It had its own, there was a 
freaking cafe in Japan that you could go visit for quite a while. It was a ridiculous hit over there and virtually unknown over here. But it did not come out here until they finally released uh, the one for the Wii <laughs> and the PlayStation 2 with the, cow, with the cowgirl that was taking place in New York. Um, yeah, it's kind of a combination visual novel slash strategy game. Uh, the thing that I like about the, the Saturn version versus the, uh, the Wii version, for example, is the Wii version was more 3D. Uh, the combat, um, I, I think, didn't work quite as well. Whereas the Saturn one was kind of a simple, simplified uh, isometric strategy RPG, but I, I think that perspective worked a little bit better. I but. feel like the main character for that game wound up in Project Cross Zone. That or two. Oh, almost certainly. Yeah. Because Crossbone was a dumping ground for all of the Sega stuff. Oh, it was fantastic. That's why it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that was... That that series really was huge in Japan, wasn't it? It was uh, very popular, and you always heard a lot about it over here, but obviously it, it took a very long time for any version of the game to be released outside of Japan. The first time I heard about it was when I was actually living in Japan, and I was doing uh, research... For one of my first freelance projects, which was the, I think, the 30 best uh, game anime uh, tie-in games, which is also where I learned about Super Robot Wars for the first time as well. Oh, that's where the sin started, huh? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, aside from Sakura Wars and Shining Force 3, uh, there was Dragon Force, which was a Sega uh, published game, and it's... Like, if you look at it now, it looks kind of like an old Sting RPG, if you remember those, uh, in the way that you have kind of, like, it's not like a Final Fantasy Tactics or anything like that. Instead, you have armies that are charging at one another, and you're kind of setting up the tactics as they're fighting and everything. And it was really gorgeous for the time, uh, kind of combining sprites with this rotating 3D battlefield, uh, but it's more of a side perspective. Yeah, uh, I always wanted to play it. Was it was quite well regarded for its time, yeah. And you have a band that named itself after it, as far as I know. I mean, if they yeah. did a song about Symphony of the Night, then there's no way they didn't name themselves after Dragon Force. No, those, those, are, those are great games. Dragon Force is really cool. Uh, and it does throw around a ton of sprites on screen, making it very oh. unique. It's more like a, a consoleized take on what would become the Total War series in a way. You know, where you've kind of got these massive armies clashing and right. kind of the vibe you get from it. Uh, but yeah, there's really not a lot else like that. And it was definitely a different sort of strategy RPG. What was your take on the Langrisser series, John? Because I saw that you're making sure to add it to the list. <laughs> so, yeah, that's something I've talked a lot about with a friend of mine recently. And this, it's a very popular series. It's, it's very tactics-like, but it has sort of a darker story. And it started out on Mega Drive. It did have ports all over the place, but it really found its home on Saturn with so Langrisser 3, 4, and 5, at least during the 90s. I believe all of them were Saturn exclusive at the time. Uh, whereas Langrisser 1 and 2 did receive sort of remakes on PS1 as well. And um, it was. It was just a. It's a really cool dark strategy series um, with with a focus on a really cool world and storylines and get a very interesting tactics like battle system. 
uh, and it has music by the same composer that did the Grandia soundtrack, which is really nice as well, and really uh, strong character designs and everything, but it never found an audience outside of Japan, I guess, uh, and it was kind of killed off after the Dreamcast game, which wasn't great. But Languister th- 3, 4, and 5, especially 4 and 5, are kind of well-regarded games today. And it's... Uh, are you familiar with Growlancer? Yes, I'm I not. I remember Growlancer. Because Growlancer is basically uh, the spiritual successor to Languister. It's the same team. They went on to do that after, you know, Languister Millennium kind of killed off that series and i mean it's all new characters and such but it's basically like a continuation of that which is kind of a bizarre thing but yeah i mean this this is one of those things in japan i think where it was a very popular series on the saturn all right observation number four uh also a lot of beat-em-up rpgs actually one of my main takeaways is that there seemed to be a push on the saturn to get away from the much more traditional uh rpg kind of setup that you would see on the Super Nintendo, or right, where, you know, it's kind of in that Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy tradition. I mean, you had those games, they did exist, but um, even a game like Panzer Dragoon Saga, very different from your traditional uh, Final Fantasy uh, type game. Games like Dragon Force. Um, games uh the various tactics games and then you have these beat 'em up rpgs which seem to lead in a lot more heavily into action uh some of them are arcade ports um you have games like princess crown mm. which was made by george kamatani who would eventually go on to found vanillaware and make odin sphere uh you had uh dnd shadows over mistara which uh that was an arcade game and then you had uh, Guardian Heroes, which was by Atlas. And I thought there were people who didn't particularly like Guardian Heroes, but it seems to be very highly regarded, oh, so and well, at least on a lot of lists. Guardian Heroes is a, is a treasure game. So this was, this was kind of during the period when treasure was firing on cylinders. I don't know. Are you guys fans of their work? Uh, I am like... I like Sin and Punishment. I'm an admirer yeah, from like- afar. That's that's fair because their stuff is often weird, but <laughs> I'm a big fan of their game. I like McDonald's Land and Treasureland, or it was called. Yeah, I know. it was a good exactly. game. <laughs> that's actually not bad. It's probably the best McDonald's game that exists. Yeah, <laughs> and you wouldn't think the bar is, is that is that high, but you know, there's actually some good McDonald's games out there. There are, <laughs> but yeah. So Guardian Heroes, that's actually one of the games I did get back in the day, and um, it is basically sort of a beat 'em up with sort of three planes and you use the trigger buttons to sort of go between the, the near and far plane and you're basically battling your way through and you have access to spells and sort of this golden servant character that you could bring up sort of a little like icon menu to sort of command him around and it was stat driven so at the end of each battle you should allocate stats based on how you performed and you sort of choose what you want to upgrade and what you want to focus on and it has a lot of dialogue and story sequences. And of course, you get choices along the way. So, you know, you encounter a boss, you defeat him, and you can decide do you want to go to town or do you want to go this way instead through the forest. So it's a branching narrative game with sort of a focus on the different uh, stats as well. But at its core, it really is like a beat-em-up game, as you say. 
uh, just with really big sprites. And it did eventually get uh, a conversion on Xbox 360 and a pseudo-sequel on Game Boy Advance. So You want to talk about beautiful sprite work. Man, that game was gorgeous. <laughs> it really instantly stood out from a lot of older other Saturn games, which were 3D. And you were like, well, I can see how this used to be pretty. Where this one was like, oh my god, this looks like Street Fighter Alpha right here. Yeah, exactly. It, it really was awesome. And actually, all of these beat-em-up RPGs that you mentioned are pretty darn beautiful looking, I think. I mean, Princess Crown, same thing. Just these huge, gorgeous sprites and uh, sort of uh, beautiful pixel art worlds to explore. And Dungeons & Dragons. I finally got a copy of this on Saturn this year. Oh, really? And it, inclu- and it includes both games. Uh, but the second arcade game actually requires the four megabyte RAM expansion <laughs> cart to run. Beautiful. So, you know, you got to pop in that cart. But what you get is just insane sprite work. These huge, super well animated sprites. And it really is sort of a pseudo RPG. Yeah. Yeah. I played the hell out of that weird. game in the they're, arcade. They're cool games though, right? They really are. Um, I remember just like really loving them because they had those like combinations of, of you know arcade action beat 'em up and RPG elements. Like not the D and D franchise aside, just uh, yeah, you had your stats, you had your magic spells, uh, you could change weapons. You had of course your different classes, and they all had their strengths and weaknesses according to uh, you know D and D lore. It was just a really good game all around. Of course, it looked fantastic. Yeah, it super, it's it's kind of crazy to me that that was an arcade game even just due to some of the depth that it has there. But it works. It's really good stuff. And finally, when I think of the Sega Saturn, I think of a console that has its roots deep in 90s anime. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So there were definitely licensed anime games on the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo and other things like that. But it really felt like that kind of uh, licensed spinoff games came into their own on the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn, not the least because you could have the full motion, like animated videos uh, to start the sh- to start the game. Uh, the graphics could be very faithful to how they would look um, on the actual show. You could incorporate music a lot more easily into the CD-based soundtracks, and ultimately, they were just kind of an attractive shout for a lot of anime developers who were looking to make a quite quick buck. Uh, there was a the Super Robot War series, which I mentioned um, on the Game Boy and the Super Nintendo, it the Saturn is kind of an interesting one for that series because, first of all, Super Robot Wars F, which was a kind of a remake, reimagining of Super Robot Wars 4, and that was the first example of Evangelion coming into the Super Robot Wars series. Oh. Um, it was also the last time, I believe, that... Uh, Winkysoft, which was the, <laughs> yes, they were the original developers of the Super Robot Wars series. They more or less exited after Super Robot Wars F. And they were no, kind of notorious for making much harder games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very unforgiving. Like, if you chose a Gundam, uh, good luck pitting up against an Evangelion or the Angels or whatever, because <laughs> they were probably going to kick its butt. Oh, yeah, destroyed. At the same time, though, real uh, real robot enemies could be like freaking impossible to hit. Uh, that that those games would just kick your butt. <laughs> like there are Super Robot Wars fans who go back to F and just go, "Yep, that's the one." That's, <laughs> that if you don't play F, like 
You're not a real Super Robot Wars fan. <laughs> oh, so the, uh, you're going to hate me for saying this, the Dark Souls of Super Robot Wars. Oh, it totally is. Uh, it's, it's pretty legendary. Though, I mean, there are ways that, just like in Dark Souls, you could break it, because Edeon in F-Final had, like, map-clearing weapons and everything. So, uh, so yeah, uh, Super Robot Wars uh, did not look as good as it did on the PlayStation uh, because they would start to put more of an emphasis on graphics um, in the later games, but it uh, sure was an anime game. Uh, some of the more traditional ones, uh, Magic Knight Wraith is fairly famous, uh, A, because it came out from Working Designs, and B, because I believe it was the last Saturn game to come out in North America. Yeah, and one of the first in Japan, or very early, so it was, I think, the last official retail game in North America. Did it take them that long to get the rights, or? Oh, I, 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 I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I seem to remember something to do with uh, issues with the code base, Mm. the original developers just making their life difficult, or I can't remember exactly, but I just know that they apparently had a very difficult time completing that project. Wow! So it was, it was a tough one. It gets on a lot of lists just because it came out here in North America, but in the grand scheme of things, Magic Knight Ray Earth, not that great an RPG. No, not at all. <laughs> I guess when you have a a library in, in North America that's as dilapidated as the Saturn's North American uh, RPG genre, you gotta do what you gotta do. Gotta fill it out somehow. Yeah. There was also a Slayer's Saturn RPG. Was it really? Which, yeah, it, it also wasn't very good. There's nothing more 90s than Slayers. I never I never watched much of it. I always appreciated the aesthetic, though. Okay, so those are our observations on the Sega Saturn's RPG library. So, I mean, let's wrap up a little bit by talking about what was the RPG legacy of the Sega Saturn. Um, in my opinion, I think that it is well-remembered to this day in part because so many of those games were inaccessible and are inaccessible. Um, you had to import a ton of the games that are on this list. You had to import games like Panzer Dragoon Saga uh, to start with, Princess Crown, um, j- uh, just on down the list, right? And then beyond that, a lot of these other games like Dragon Force just are basically impossible to find. And... When a game, when games are relatively obscure or hard to get, they start to kind of build up a legend around them, I want to say. And just the sheer wanting of being able to access them uh, elevates their legend, I should say. Uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga, I think, is an incredible example of that. That's not to say that a lot of these games weren't amazing on their own merits. I, again, Panzer Dragoon Saga, great example of that. But uh, the Saturn was such an odd beast in so many ways. And I think the fact that it was so popular in Japan and not popular at all here, so many games never came out here, enhanced its legend, ultimately. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, The games that were localized have become somewhat legendary as a result, but that's really just scratching the surface of what the Saturn has to offer. But when it comes to RPGs, obviously, uh, for most people in the West, uh, Japanese games are going to be somewhat inaccessible in RPG form. So you're kind of missing out on 
80% of the RPG library or something like that. There are an absurd number of RPGs in the system, really, if you go down the full list. And it's just not possible to get most of them. So I think in terms of RPGs, I don't feel like the Western audience has as much of an appreciation for just how broad of a library it actually has. And it really just... Most people kind of focus on the heavy hitters like Panzer Dragoon Saga, uh, Shining Force, I guess, and things like that. And even, obviously, Magic Knight Ray Earth gets attention because of its late release status. I, I wish that more of the library had become available for people in the West because I really feel like it's it's not that far. It's, it's not on an equal with the PlayStation, but it's not that far off. And really, it's... It's one of the better RPG systems from that entire era, I'd say. Like, right behind PlayStation and Super NES, perhaps, or Super Famicom. And, yeah, I mean, there's even... There's just so much crazy stuff on there. I mean, we didn't even talk about... I mean, there's a Bomberman strategy game on there. There's a ton of action RPGs, like Zelda-like games on there. Like, I wanted to mention the Linkle Liver story, one of the worst names you can imagine. <laughs> but it was developed by the teams that did Crusader of Senti for the uh, Sega Genesis. And it's basically like a Zelda-like action RPG, but with really, really high-quality 2D sprites and this beautiful 2D artwork. And it just got a fan translation this year, by the way, which is cool. Oh, so cool. You can play that in English. Uh, and that's actually the same team that would develop games like Resident Evil Code Veronica for Capcom, uh, weirdly enough. But that's really good. There's um, there's plenty of weird dungeon crawlers. Like I don't know if you guys are familiar with Baroque, but it's just this Sounds familiar. moody, super dark RPG. Uh, they did sort of a remake on PS2 and Wii, but the remake is third person and very anime, where the original is extremely dark and more in common with something like a from software game i'd say at the time uh but really you know there's just so much of the stuff and so little of is as accessible today to the western audience so i actually feel like there's a ton of potential here for uh modern translations somehow i mean some of it has fan translations but i just don't know i mean the effort required to bring this stuff west it's too it's too high nobody's gonna do it so for now people can just continue to seek copies of Panzer Dragoon Saga which is I think reaching in the around a thousand bucks at this point have they really figured out how to emulate the Saturn or yes. is it better just to they have buy a figured console? it out um, it took a while but yeah PC emulators are pretty good right now uh, and I've also personally spent some time playing around with the poly mega at E3 this year which I have no idea when it's actually going to hit but it's an emulation box and plays original saturn discs even wow uh and i tested a ton of games on that thing and i was surprised at just how accurate it seems to be so there are solutions and including something like that and that's a system that will even support fan translation patches so you could insert a real sega saturn disc game and then load in a separate patch on the side and you could play these games in english that's pretty cool so there's there's potential there <laughs> what an age we live in nadia any other thoughts uh, I think it's interesting that, like, uh, well, first of all, just saying that I feel like, as an RPG fan, like, just the Saturn is this big gap that I'm very regretful about. And I know, you know, just the way the history played out in my life, that's just the way it's always is going to be. Like, I don't, you know, all things considered, I don't regret getting the PlayStation over the Saturn for its RPGs, but I am a little sad about it. Um, because I've noticed that a lot of the games we talked about today, 
uh, are exclusive to the Saturn. They're not like, oh, okay, it also received a PlayStation port. I mean, some of them did, of course, but uh, we talked about some great exclusives. We talked about, you know, Shining Force. We talked about Dragon Force. We talked about uh, Panzer Dragon Saga, of course, and I'm sure there's others that we went through that are also exclusive, um, even the way Grandia was originally meant for the Saturn. I think that's very significant as well. So, yeah, it's... um. You know, now we live in a time when RPGs are, are much, much more popular than they were back then. And, you know, most of us are going to have to just keep on going with this big gap in our in our RPG history because there's there's nothing to be done for it now unless some massive hero uh, gives us a Saturn box full of RPGs. You know, it's interesting when I think about the Sega Saturn, I think the first thing that comes to mind is usually fighting games uh, and then arcade ports and then RPGs. And I, I think that RPGs certainly have a significant history on the Saturn, but um, in fact, it may actually the Saturn may actually have the richest RPG history out of all of the Sega consoles because mm-hmm. you can go back to the Genesis and see a ton of great older games, and of course, they had Fantasy Star Two and Fantasy Star Four, but the Saturn really did cut loose a lot i think with the inventiveness uh with a lot of its games like the ambition was really really strong with the saturn's library and then as well get to the dreamcast uh, jrpg library was actually quite weak unfortunately so yeah it's uh, but when i think about the saturn i always think about first about how the first time i really started to think about the saturn in a positive light was when i was still playing fighting games and i got alpha 3 on the playstation and everybody I saw on the internet was talking about how the Saturn version was much superior. Was it really? Yeah, yes. it's pretty much arcade perfect on the Saturn. Oh, because I loved play. I, I loved Alpha Three on the PlayStation. I played the hell out of that game. It's it's totally oh, fine too. on the PlayStation though. Like it's still an awesome version. It's really just the things like missing a bunch of animation for yeah. Like. Yeah, that I remember from playing the arcade version, playing versus playing the PlayStation Three version. Sorry, PlayStation. And version. Then of course I had. It had shoot 'em ups that were highly coveted for a very long time. Um, oh yeah. What was the game? So Ikaruga didn't come out on the Saturn, no, but what, Ra- what was the other Silver game? Gun was that was the, the big, one. That's the big one. But there are <laughs> there's so many on the Saturn. It's mm-hmm. almost hard. So this, but it's a mix though. There's there's 3D shooters like Radiant Silver Gun, of course. But then there's stuff like. Um, Lots of arcade ports like Battle Garaga just got released, uh, sort of for, I guess PS4 recently. Limited Run even did like a take on that. And that's a that's a great Saturn conversion. Um, there is Sokyu Gurentai. There's Darius Gaiden on there. Uh, big fan of the Darius games, of course. Uh, just tons of tons of others. Actually, I'd have to bring up my library list <laughs> to look through and see. Uh, everything that's out there but yeah it's it's a great for shooters um it's also there's there's, a, there's I'm, I'm a big fan of taito games for some reason especially their arcade mm. output and they received a ton of of taito games on the saturn uh, i think one of the most sought after that i really love is elevator action returns uh which is just a tremendous game one of the best games on uh any system of that generation i think just in terms of pure fun uh, but, yeah, I mean, the Saturn was home to so many arcade conversions. So the Sega Saturn, wonderful little system. 
I would love for it to get a proper mini console. Probably not going to happen, but one well, can dream. PC Engine got right. one, so <laughs> you never know. There's a Turbo Graphics PC Engine Mini, and they they threw a bunch of random Japanese games on that one too, not even translated. So <laughs> you never know. Yeah, you can play Snatcher in Japanese, not understand a word of it. <laughs> and Snatcher's on the Saturn, by the way, and uh, yeah, not the best version. That uh, yes. that that version they redid all the graphics and like, hey, we got to make everything look like <coughs> pre-rendered CGI stuff, and it's pretty bad. All right, that was our deep dive into the Sega Saturn for our console RPG quest. We're officially well into the 32-bit era. Okay, let's move on and wrap up. Oh wow, we're moving right along. I mean, we still got a lot of consoles left to go, but. It feels good to be like right in the teeth of the the mid '90s and the 32-bit era. There's so many interesting things to discuss with the the PlayStation and the Saturn, and heck, maybe even the N64. I'm looking forward to talking about <laughs> Quest 64. Are you really? Did you actually play that? <laughs> no, I mean I played it, but I don't actually look forward to talking about it. It's not that interesting. No, okay, I didn't think so. The N64 has its own kind of interesting legacy. I mean, certainly. It does. Uh, its ties to Final Fantasy VII make it interesting by itself. Oh, yeah, that'll be something. That'll definitely be something to talk about that I'm looking forward to because I have history with that. So, do you have anything you want to add to our conversation about the Sega Saturn? Well, here's how you can reach me you can send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. You can leave a comment on our show notes over on the site or you can send me a DM on Twitter. We love to hear from you. And we may read your comments on the show and react to them. And also we collect them for mailbags sometimes, which can be really nice. But thank you to John for coming on the show, taking the time. He lives in Germany, so it's like 10 p.m. over there right now. You're a champ. No, it's fine. It's 10 p.m. It's all good. (laughs) Just starting to wake up. Yeah, we got completely derailed by BlitzCon was the problem. Otherwise, we would have recorded a lot earlier, I think. Uh, You know, this... BlizzCon comes but once a year, I guess. Or does it come multiple John, times do you have anything you want to plug? Um, well, uh, be sure to visit Digital Foundry, youtube.com slash digitalfoundry, and especially, please check out DF Retro over there, which is sort of the series that I've spun off on my own. It's focused on sort of the technical aspects and conversions and ports and all kinds of random stuff about old games and consoles. And I tend to take more of an approach focusing on sometimes... <laughs> A little less Nintendo-centric stuff, but I love Nintendo, too. It's all there. And, of course, uh, you can find me over on Twitter, at DarkOneX, as I said. And, yeah, we're just constantly putting out stuff. I wish I could do more retro right now, but it is the crazy holiday season. Yes. Big games are coming out constantly. Well, not for much longer, because as soon as the next batch come out, that's pretty much it. (laughs) We're shutting down house. (laughs) (laughs) See you in the new year. Yeah, because, like, December is dead. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's the time to make all the Christmas content. There you go. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, as always. And we will be back next week. But for John and Nadia and myself, thank you for listening. And happy adventuring.